The Secrets of Doctor Who is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous supporters. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash donate. Merry Christmas, everyone. You're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, episode 157. I bring you greetings from all Daleks. I'm gonna spend my Christmas with a Dalek And hug him underneath the mistletoe And if he's very nice, I'll feed him sugar spice And hang a Christmas stocking from his big left toe And when we both get up on Christmas morning I'll kiss him on his chrome-inflated head And take him in to say hi to Mom And frighten Daddy out of his bed Hi, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, where we discuss everything about the hit BBC series, Doctor Who. And today we're discussing the Big Finish audio play, Chimes of Midnight. Joining me today on the panel are Jimmy Aiken. Merry Christmas, Jimmy. Merry Christmas, Dom. And Father Corey Stika. Merry Christmas, Father Corey. Well, Merry Christmas. So, uh, folks, first, before we go any further, I want to remind you to like The Secrets of Doctor Who on our Facebook page. Facebook.com slash Secrets of Doctor Who, and to retweet the show on Twitter, where we're at SQPN, and give us lots of social media engagement, which helps us to get the show out in front of more people. That would be much appreciated. So we're talking about, again, uh, to remind folks, we're, we're, this month we've been talking about Big Finish Audio Plays. Big Finish produces audio versions of Doctor Who stories, original Doctor Who stories, featuring original cast. So we're, we're, we've been talking about a couple so far, and Today, as this releases, is Christmas Day, and so we are uh, covering an episode that takes place on Christmas Eve, shall we say. Yeah, it's a Christmas episode. Yeah, and uh, it features the Eighth Doctor, uh, played by Paul McGann, and his companion, Charlie. Uh, this was released in 2002, just so, so you have a sense of when this was, came out, so before New Who uh, was around. Uh, it's about two hours long. I noticed. And let's talk about Paul McGann, the Eighth Doctor, and Big Finish Audio. Yeah. So so Paul McGann just had the one TV special in the 1990s as his only on-screen appearance as the Doctor to that point. He subsequently appeared in Night of the Doctor for his regeneration. But uh, for years after that, you know, before New Who, for almost 10 years, he was the current Doctor. And so he was featured in various novels. But when Big Finish got the license to use, you know, characters from Doctor Who and hire actors from Doctor Who, they hired Paul McGann and he continued the adventures of the Eighth Doctor. So the Eighth Doctor exists primarily in audio form. And in Night of the Doctor, they canonized essentially his Big Finish run because when he's about to drink the chalice to regenerate into the war doctor. He names companions, and Charlie, his companion in this episode, is the first one he names. She's his main companion. He also names others from the Big Finish audios, like Kariz, who was a non-human, and and a few others. But uh, but Charlie's the first one, and she's in this episode. Her name is Charlotte Pollard, but she goes by Charlie. She's from the early 20th century, and she originally was 
she originally died in the R101 airship disaster in France. That's a real historical airship disaster. It killed more people than the Hindenburg, but it's less known in America because it didn't happen here, whereas the Hindenburg did. Right. So she died, and that was a fixed point in time. They didn't yet have the, the term fixed point in time because that was introduced in New Who, but they had the concept, and the doctor, despite the fact she was fated to die there, rescued her. And thus, Charlie is a living paradox. And that's what, and she doesn't know it. He hasn't shared with her yet. Every time she asks about her death, he kind of dodges the question. But he was not supposed to save her, and he did. And that's what generates the paradox in this story. Okay. Yeah. So she's from 1930, which is when the R101 disaster happened. But this story is set in 1906, so she's not even born yet. It's six years before her birth. Okay. And this, because of the paradox, this is, I I was thinking about it, this is maybe the most timey-wimey Christmas story Doctor (laughs) Who has ever done. Exactly. Even even more so than than A Christmas Carol, which was very timey-wimey. Yeah. Uh, What I like about it, though, is I love seeing Paul McGann's or hearing Paul McGann's Doctor in action. Yes. He's very confident. He's very adventurous. He's dashing. He's suave. And he's not in his regeneration madness. So you get to hear him being fully functional as the doctor, as a character. Right. Also, I really like Charlie. She is uh, adventurous. She's sort of a tomboy. In fact, uh, that doesn't come out so much in this story. But when he first met her on the R101, she was passing as a male. So she, you know, it was 1930, it's a man's world, and she wanted adventure, so she was pretending to be a young man, but wasn't. Okay. Spoiler. Yes. I think that's one nice thing about the the big finish is they were able to flesh out the Eighth Doctor's character. Yes. Because, again, you know, like you said, we only had one episode with him and really didn't know anything about him as a character. Obviously, Paul McGann didn't know anything about him as a character because they were just establishing the character. But they were able to really flesh it out to the point where people were thrilled to see him at the the little Night of the Doctor special. Right. You know, that we finally got a closure to that arc, but there was an actual arc there to close. It wasn't just like he was a, oh, yeah, he happened, but we kind of forgot about him. Right. Right. Yeah. And there wasn't just a 20-year or, yeah, 20-year gap at that point mm-hmm. to, to, to close. There was something in the middle. And this was about... Two years, a little more than two years into Big Finish's run, like right. they had started a couple years earlier. You know, one of the things to to mention is that the actress who plays Charlie India Fisher mm-hmm. is become known as a voiceover actress in Britain. And in fact, yes, if you've ever listened, uh, watched Master Chef Britain, uh, the original Master Chef, she is the voice of the narrator. She mm-hmm. sounds very different. I was looking her up and. Uh, or if you bank with uh, Nat West, which is a major bank in Britain, and if you've ever called their voicemail, you know the their phone tree, their their automated phone, she's that voice too. So, right. mm-hmm. so if you ever get a chance to listen to this and that, you know, Jimmy, when you mentioned that her origin and the fact that she's a a, par- a time paradox, I have to say that would have helped me, uh, yeah. listening to this if right. I if I'd known that. So that is good, yeah. something good to know. They um, they get it out there, but because. The doctor is currently avoiding the question. They don't hit it as squarely on the head as they later do. Okay. Mm. And what was the, how he rescued her? Was that part of 
a big was that a big finish yes episode yeah it's a it's a it's her introductory episode it's called storm warning and okay. so the doctor meets her on the r101 and it crashes and she dies but doesn't because the doctor saves her okay, okay. and and it's clear at the end of that when he saved her he knows that there's going to be a price to pay for what he did. He just doesn't know what that price is going to be yet. He's kind of hoping he can get away with this. Okay. And were there any, do you, do you know if there are any Eighth Doctor stories, adventures they had in between, or does this oh, yeah, directly yeah, yeah. from that? This is, this is like their sixth adventure together or something. Oh, okay. And he, he mentions some of the intervening adventures when he's trying to convince her to make the choice to live. Oh, he, right. He says, remember, you never would have gone here and we never would have done this if you didn't mm -hmm. live. So you have to live. Okay, so let's get into the story itself. Uh, they they they're traveling to I guess they're going to Singapore in 1930. Uh, right, he promised to take her there. Yeah, uh, which actually would be a very fun place to visit in 1930. I got to tell you, I mean, even today, but but it, it is a very interesting place. I think Indiana Jones goes there in one of his movies. So uh, they end up in a dark cupboard, uh, the the a pantry essentially, um, with nobody around. It's very strange because it's it's like they they they, they see a, the scullery um the scullery in a in a in a in a big um estate an aristocratic house mm -hmm. was the where uh it was where the dishes were washed that's yeah, essentially di mm -hmm. dishes and clothes and also it was used as an auxiliary kitchen right uh and they find like dishes half washed and um hot water the water's still hot but everything is dark and there's nobody around it's very strange and then we begin switching back and forth between that with the doctor and Charlie and then just the, the house servants in this big, same big house we've learned. We kind of quickly realize that they're living the events like the doctor and Charlie are sort of out of phase almost. That might yeah, be right. something we'd be familiar with uh, with them. And they're very strange. Like so there's a there's a scullery maiden named Edith. There's Mr. Shaughnessy, who's the who's the butler. And Mrs. Baddeley, who is the uh, the the uh, the cook. Cook. And so we have. Um, we also have Frederick, the chauffeur, yes. and Mary, the underparlor lady's maid. And we never and, see the family of the house, by the way. That's they never correct. enter into it. Yeah. Yeah. So this this episode of Doctor Who is basically Doctor Who meets upstairs, downstairs meets Agatha Christie. Right. Hmm. Upstairs Downstairs was a series back in the 70s that dealt with an Edwardian mansion in London, just like this one. This is a, a mansion in 1906 in London, and it's there will be an upstairs family that's high in society, and then there's the downstairs people who are the servants. And Upstairs Downstairs was kind of, it's not exactly a soap opera, but it was a drama series that focused on the the two different families, the upstairs family and the downstairs quote-unquote family, right. and the dynamics among them. And there are clear resonances between or references that are made here to upstairs-downstairs because Mr. Shaughnessy, the butler, is named after Alfred Shaughnessy, the creator of Upstairs-Downstairs. Oh. And Mrs. Baddeley, the cook is named after Angela Baddeley, the actress who played Mrs. Bridges, the cook on Upstairs Downstairs. So every time oh. they say Mrs. Baddeley, it's a reference to Upstairs Downstairs. Interesting. Right. Similarly, Edith, the dim-witted scullery maid, is a reference to Ruby, the dim-witted scullery maid on Upstairs Downstairs. 
Frederick, the cheeky young man chauffeur, is like Edward from Upstairs Downstairs. Mary, the underhouse parlor maid, or the under parlor ladies maid, I forget her exact title, is like another character. So these are all meant to remind the listener of the Upstairs Downstairs characters. What's kind of Mm -hmm. funny, though, is if this had been made a few years later, I would almost say it was... Yeah, I was going to say it would have been a, a spin or a, a tweak of Downton Abbey kind of poking at it, Downton Abbey. But right. obviously, there's this is not an original idea with Downton Abbey yes. either. Right. Downton Abbey was one of the things with Upstairs Downstairs was it, it was like the London home of this very rich family. But they had like an estate in the country called Southwold that we almost never got to see. But it would Southwold would have had an even grander house and staff because it wasn't like a townhouse. And Downton Abbey is essentially the Southwold we never got to see on Upstairs, Downstairs. So uh, when we're introduced to them, uh, Edith is singing Christmas carols because it's Christmas Eve. uh, Poorly. (laughs) She doesn't uh, know all the lyrics, so she just hums. She only knows one. And and, uh, at one point, uh, Shaughnessy says, Silent Night would not have been able to bear the irony if you sang it. (laughs) (laughs) Which is a funny line. and it, it, there's this very strange uh, interchange between Shaughnessy and Edith, where he's, on the one hand, he shows her a kindness by spelling her name for her. She's apparently illiterate, and so he spells her name out for her in the dust that she's failed to clean uh, on a table. But then he he says, I, I'll, you know, I'll tell you what I always tell you. I'm, you know, you're nothing, you're nobody. Repeat after me. I'm nothing, I'm nobody. And it's it's just so cruel. So a, a kindness and a cruelty, which plays into the ultimate plot yeah also that's our first of or maybe maybe our second but it may be our first of several phrases that the staff keep repeating bizarrely Mm -hmm. yes they repeat variants on at least three phrases one of them is i'm nothing i'm nobody and they all say that and they say it about themselves and they say it about each other you're nothing we're nothing Mm -hmm. they keep reminding themselves of their low station in life also Every time anybody mentions Mrs. Baddeley's plum puddings, um, and we should explain what those are. Pudding in America means what they call a custard in England. It's this goopy stuff, and that's not what this is. A plum pudding is like an unfrosted cake with plums in it. Right. Usually boiled in a bag or some type of steamed, maybe. It's so commonly eaten at Christmas. They're often called Christmas puddings. Yes. Right. So every time anybody mentions Mrs. Baddeley's plum puddings, somebody is guaranteed to say, it oh, it wouldn't, wouldn't be, be Christmas, Christmas without them. <laughs> and, and so you have this mechanically repeated line that ups the sense of weirdness of what's going on here. Right. And then also, once we get into the Agatha Christie murder mystery part of all this, everybody who gets accused is it it's on the basis of they have shifty eyes right and you keep hearing shifty eyes over and over again <laughs> well the other line is um it must have been suicide like oh right one, yes at one yeah. point frederick is, has uh, appears to have been run over by a car he's in the living room do you think it was suicide doctor <laughs> Yeah, yes, and yeah. the doctor is, yes, I think it was. I think he went outside, got the car, brought it into the house, ran himself over at high speed, and then put the car back outside again. I think that's, <laughs> I think it was suicide, yeah. <laughs> so uh, back to the doctor and Charlie in this darkened, weird uh, place, this out-of-phase place. Uh, Charlie notices where Edith's name has been written in the dust, and so she writes her name in the dust 
but then the dust moves back over her name, and she realizes she can't erase Edith's name. So they're in this sort of stasis sort of world at, at this point. Yeah. Also, Charlie had, in the dark, accidentally broken a jar of raspberry jam, and the jar of raspberry jam has been miraculously restored, too. Yes. So it's like time is unwinding around them, undoing the effects that they're having on their environment. And then in the in the world of the servants, um, we get this moment where the same scene plays over again, which would seem kind of weird at first, but this time, Edith faintly hears Charlie's voice, but nobody else hears it. Right. Uh, and then, and, uh, and at the same time, Charlie is starting to hear their voices. He, yes, but the uh, doctor doesn't hear them. Doctor, so there's a it, yeah. there's a connection of some kind between Edith and Charlie. Right, uh, and the doctor eventually realizes that you know that there's this frozen world around them that they can affect in small ways, and and that there's some intelligence at work here that beyond them that is. Um, it, at first excluding them and then drawing them in to this to this world um so in addition to uh mrs badley and shaughnessy and edith we also as was mentioned frederick and mary and apparently fred frederick and mary um were uh, engaged they've had an affair they've had an affair yep. and uh and mrs badley fra- knows it and is in, threatening to have them turned out yes um uh Whereas Mary suspects that, so Frederick wants to break things off. Mary suspects that Frederick is interested in Edith, so on and so forth. So what we're doing is we're setting up motives for yeah. for, yep. for murder. Um, see, I mean, a uh, lot of this, a lot of this episode plays out basically like Doctor Who version of Clue, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And at first, this is very much like um, the Unicorn and the Wasp. Yeah, or yeah. Cluedo, as they say in England. <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. For some reason, they call Clue Cluedo. Hmm. So, and then Charlie hears Edith saying that she's going to die soon. Um, and then the doctor hears clock chimes, uh, and he becomes frightened and wants to leave. Like he's like, I-, I don't know what's going on here, but we've got to get out of here. But then he realizes whatever was keeping them out is now letting them in. You know, so right. I-, I found the doctor's uh, demeanor in this very interesting. Like he, it, he, he's not like some of the later doctors who are like. Oh, it's dangerous. It's scary. Let's go in. He's more yeah. like he's more cautious. And in fact, mm-hmm. he says at the beginning here that when he decides to when they land and they're not in the place they they seem to be, he says, "Oh, I've gotten safe in my last few incarnations and I want to go back to being less safe." And and then says recalls, you know, "Oh, I used to travel for centuries without any idea of where I'd end up next." Mm-hmm. So, essentially saying that in the the 7th, the 6th and maybe the 5th doctors, he was uh, taking it safe. Getting more control of the TARDIS right. and, yeah. and using it to be less wildly unpredictable in his travels. Yeah. Even, even even to the fourth Doctor, although there was a point where he actually puts a randomizing circuit into the TARDIS. <laughs> wow. That's interesting. Yeah. And so I guess, yeah. So he traveled for centuries. So maybe is he referring to the first Doctor, you think? First and second, especially. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I found my note on it. Mary is the underhouse parlor maid. Oh, okay. But she also is, at one point, I referred to, I believe, as a lady's maid. Yes. Well, Mary's role changes yeah, as things happen. Yeah, and so, that's And that's where, as the story goes on, it gets kind of interesting because they do start changing positions. They start changing their story. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, you know, like one example, Frederick says that he, that he was driving a Chrysler. Well... I caught Chrysler. that because I was a Mopar fan. I'm a fan of the Chrysler Corporation vehicles. Yeah. Chrysler mm-hmm. didn't start till 1925. 
And I don't even know if they even got over to England by 1930. Right. Yeah, and the doctor immediately calls Frederick on the fact, how can you drive a car that hasn't been invented yet? Oh, yes. I mean, I meant a Bentley, a Chrysler, a Bentley, you know, you yeah. kind of popping right. back and forth. And and also, uh, Frederick referenced Agatha Christie, who hadn't written hadn't a book published yet. yet. Yeah, so uh, that's one of his first clues. This is Dom Bettinelli, CEO of SQPN, with a special message. The StarQuest Network is fulfilling its mission to explore the intersection of faith and pop culture. And in the past year, we've reached stunning new heights. Our programs are reaching broad new audiences with a message that helps us discern good entertainment, make sense of the world, and share the gospel with others. We continue to launch new shows and bring back great shows. We just relaunched Secrets of Star Wars, which comes at the perfect moment to capture the excitement over the new show, The Mandalorian, and the climax of the new Star Wars movies. The support of our audience is vital to this work and has helped us grow closer to meeting our financial obligations. For that, we are very grateful. But we still need to close the gap. Every new gift extends our deadline. But until we eliminate our deficits, the future of StarQuest and your favorite shows remain in question. This is why it's crucial we hear from you this Advent and Christmas, the time when nonprofits receive most of their support for the year. If you're already a supporter of StarQuest, we are very grateful and we ask you to prayerfully consider increasing your support at this time. If you are not yet a supporter, please become one now. We urgently need your help in every gift counts. Could you give $15 or even just $10 per month? That lets us provide more than 40 hours of professionally produced shows with compelling content. We have special thank you gifts for donors at several giving levels. If you are a business owner or just want to provide a leadership level of support, we now have a special giving level for sponsors, like in public broadcasting. For $500 per month, you or your business can sponsor one of the shows on our network. Listeners will hear a message in every episode thanking you for your sponsorship and giving your website. We'll also have your name and link on the SQPN webpage and in the show notes of every episode during your sponsorship. Whatever level of support you can offer, whether large or small, please show your support for SQPN this Christmas and remember that your gifts are tax deductible. Just go to sqpn.com slash give. That's sqpn.com slash give. And may God bless you and yours as we approach the celebration of our Lord's birth. So the what precipitates this is they as as the Dr. Charlie now enter into the world of the house where the, the servants are, they find Edith drowned in the scullery sink, even though there's not much water. And she's standing up. She's standing up. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, and all the servants are very cold about it. Like, oh, this is terrible to lose a scullery maid on Christmas Eve. Not this poor girl has died, but yeah. like, oh, this how this is going to affect the house. This is terrible. It, it's ruining. It's ruining the Christmas Eve. It's terrible that this happened. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, and then they 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 the servants all they don't think anything strange about the doctor and Charlie. In fact, they think the doctor is the ch- a chief inspector from Scotland Yard at first. Then later on. They think he's a freelance detective. Yeah, so they think he's the best amateur detective in London. <laughs> yeah. And that he's there as a guest of the family upstairs and that Charlie is his niece uh, Some for some reason. So they have this idea and they the whole thing about like her dying, standing up in the sink. The dog's like, how do you die? How do you like commit suicide standing up at yeah. a sink? Yeah. Like he says, it was, he says it was impossible to do to drown yourself in that way because as soon as you lost consciousness, you'd collapse and your head would come out of the sink. And yeah. 
And and Mrs. Baddeley's response is, well, Edith was a very stupid girl. She may not have known it was impossible when she did it. Yeah. <laughs> That's what's kind of funny about it is when they were writing this, they had to have a lot of fun trying to figure out what's the most impractical way that someone could be killed. Right. And that someone would think it was su- to think it was suicide would be completely ridiculous. Yeah. Um, because Mrs. Badley of, at, uh, of at coming up will be killed by being stuffed with her own plum pudding. Like yeah, she, suff- oh, she, suffocated with her own plum pudding. Yeah, and so she committed suicide by being suffocated. And you mentioned yeah. Frederick in the car, you know. Yeah. He ran himself yeah. over, parked the car, and then died. Yeah. <laughs> right. Also, um, Edith is going to die another couple of times. One of them is she's got a uh, a kitchen sink plunger over her mouth and has been right. suffocated by that. And she dies one more time. She's on the floor, and I forget what the excuses in that case but one of the things the doctor the doctor notices a couple of things about all these murders one is they all occur on the hour as the clock is chiming and we hear a woman scream every time someone is murdered but that doesn't make sense because how could mrs Baddeley scream if she's being suffocated with her own plum pudding Right, And, and how could Edith scream if her mouth is covered with a kitchen sink plunger? Well, and it's the same scream regardless of who it was that was being killed, too. Yes, yeah. it's the same scream, and it's a woman's scream. So why is it a woman screaming when Frederick is run over by the car? Right. And so he, he also notices these are all the methods of death are all related to their jobs. Mm-hmm. So Edith dies in the scullery by with the wash basin and with the kitchen sink plunger. And one other thing that I'm forgetting, Edward dies by the car that he's the chauffeur of. Mrs. Baddeley dies with the plum puddings and it wouldn't be Christmas without them. Yeah. <laughs> and so the doctor deduces there's an intelligence here that is causing all of this to happen. And uh, there's also this, as they're in, the doctor and Charlie start to investigate. And there's this moment where, Charlie is is questioning Mrs. Badley, and Mrs. Badley starts calling her uh, my little puppet, and she starts treating her like as if Charlie's a little girl, and you know, mm-hmm. serves her plum pudding and talks to her like she's like a child. Insists and, on feeding her plum pudding, right? And Charlie, for a moment, starts to become a little girl. In fact, her voice yeah. changes even, and and then comes out of it, and and so there's this this that's that's very important to the story. And then we, yeah, we have all of these uh, people talking about shifty eyes. Everybody else has shifty eyes, so therefore they must yeah. have done it. By the way, I'm fascinated by how uh, Mr. Shaughnessy, the butler, tells the staff. I mean, he talks to the doctor and says, I assume you'll want to question us all one by one. <laughs> and it's like, okay, so this is not Gosford Park. Right. <laughs> where the ideas of the staff having committed the murder is unthinkable. Right. But then he's like telling all of the servants, obey the doctor in everything, except, of course, where it comes to the running of the house. Right. And so so the doctor then interviews Shaughnessy and Frederick and Charlie interviews the women. She interviews Mary and Mrs. Baddeley, who does start talking to her as if they know each other. And she's been caring for her for years since she was a little child and has always made plum pudding for her. Right. Uh, and then Charlie shifts back into the world, that out-of-phase darkness place, and Edith tells her, don't forget me, and yeah. Edward Grove is alive. Right. And we don't know, if like the doctor at first thinks that's a reference to a person named Edward Grove, right. but he, he dismisses Edward Grove as being the killer because um, you can't have the killer be someone who we haven't met yet. In, and that's against the rules 
of these right. the, the doctors trying to sense out that this is a, more of a game. Yes. That it's it's you know it like a murder mystery again like you know Agatha Christie murder mystery and so he's starting to treat it like that. Right. We also at about the time or just after we hear that Edward Grove is alive, whoever Edward Grove is, the chimes strike eleven and we hear a yes. new scream and now Mrs. Baddeley is dead, having been right. stuffed with her plum pudding. It wouldn't be Christmas without them. <laughs> yeah. And we have a new round of interrogations that right. happen, and the doctor is talking to Frederick and Mary and. Or actually, before that, Frederick and Mary are talking to each other in private, and they both, and it, this is part of the creepiness and weirdness of this episode, is the way they talk to each other. They're so innocent about it, and they both acknowledge they didn't kill Mrs. Baddeley, but we could be lying. Oh, right, absolutely. If, if one of us was a murderer, then fibbing would be nothing. <laughs> and so they, they're like unsure about whether they killed her or not it's like their memories are changing yeah. also um up to this point mary has been after edith the scullery maid died uh, mrs baddeley insisted that mary take over her duties which mm -hmm. really did not please mary because she's of a higher station than a scullery maid she's an underhouse parlor maid or maybe even a lady's maid mm -hmm. and she does not want to be doing the work of a scullery maid but now that Mrs. Baddeley is dead, remember Edith said in the dark place to remember her because everyone's going to yeah. forget. And so now the staff, now that Mrs. Baddeley is dead, the staff is starting to forget about Edith. And right. so Frederick and Mary are talking and Mary's reminding him of the fling that they had. And now Mrs. Baddeley can't be a threat to us. And he's like, oh, that wasn't anything serious. I mean, can you imagine a chauffeur with a scullery maid? And she's like, oh. Well, I guess not if I'm a scullery maid. And she's like now assuming the identity mm -hmm. of a scullery maid because she's not remembering Edith. Right. Right. And so as the doctor and Charlie are trying to investigate this, um, they realize that th you know, things are happening on the hour. And so they have until midnight and they realize, wait, that was between 10 and 11 was was not an, not hour. an hour. Yeah. Yes. Charlie's the first to kind of say, I mean, I don't have, I'm not that great with time, but that was not an hour. Right. And now suddenly the clock is. As it was the time has taken fright and is running away because the watch he's looking at the watch and the watch is running fast to to midnight again. It's like for mm -hmm. time is sped up, and then at midnight everything resets. Uh, Edith is dead again. Mrs. Baddeley is alive again, but this time Edith was killed with the plunger to the face, as as we saw. And then um, the doctor is trying to leave. He's like he's trying to test the limits of this situation mm -hmm. they're in. They try to leave, and Mary and Frederick. Uh, prevent the doctor from leaving under orders of the masters and confess to killing Edith. Um, but they uh, don't know which one of them did it. Right, mm -hmm. right. Um, well, the, the doctor tries to go upstairs and Shaughnessy pulls a gun on him to keep him from going upstairs to talk to the master and the mistress of the house. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 love, uh, there's, I love the first time this happens with Shaughnessy and the gun because the doctor initially is looking for a watch. Because he and Charlie have realized that time is running faster than it should, but they don't have a timepiece to confirm that. And there are like no clocks anywhere in the under in the downstairs area. So they go to Shaughnessy because he's got a pocket watch and the doctor wants to see it and Shaughnessy won't give it to him. And then when the doctor says, well, I'll go upstairs and look for the grandfather clock, we can all hear ticking. Yeah. And Shaughnessy pulls the gun on him and the doctor fakes him out. Yeah. With this crazy bit of logic, it's like, oh, okay, well, in, then in that case, give me the watch. And he, Shaughnessy is like, what? 
well, it's only fair. I mean, you can't shoot me with a watch, can you? And he hands over the watch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, the doctor's got a sense that thing, you know, that the things aren't, you know, the people aren't operating like real people do. And he sort of takes 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 advantage of that for his purposes. Um th- there's a interesting moment. So it instead of this time at eleven, instead of Mrs. Badley dying, it's Frederick who dies. And uh Mary is all broken up. Oh, Freddie to be killed by your own Chrysler or Bentley or whatever it is. <laughs> like, yes. like it's like this is just nuts this is these people are crazy well to, to kind of leap ahead a bit the house is called edward grove it 22 it is, edward grove yes right. and it's alive and it's the killer sort of ish and it's causing a time loop maybe right. <laughs> so and, the servants and- are controlled by the house the house is trying to kill the doctor but it can't until the chimes at midnight Right. So the house can only interfere in a significant way with the it's like it can program these people to behave as they're going to between the chimes. But it's like the house can only majorly manifest itself and its will while the chimes are striking. That's why the murders occur on the hour as the chimes are striking. Right. And and so eventually, once they realize that the house is alive, uh, the doctor gets the house to manifest itself during the chimes, and it slows down time so that it can stretch out the chimes so it can have a conversation with the doctor while possessing the body of Shaughnessy. There's an important point, too, about this, like, why is the house alive? And the doctor says, well, you know the accepted wisdom that when a, a, there's a traumatic event in a house, the house absorbs that emotional energy. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it, which is sort of like a you know a, a people ghost think of, story thing. ghost stories right yeah. and so what hap- what would happen then if that house was at the same time caught in some kind of time loop absorbing those traumatic events over and over s- feasting on it becoming more sentient but then the question is what started the time loop that's sort of separate from right. the traumatic event right and eventually we figure out what's going on here why there is this weird paradoxical time loop happening in this house it's because of charlie right charlie and, is at the center of everything right and 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 that that becomes clear because before the house manifested himself the doctor actually tried to get out of there and grabs right. charlie and jumps they into the tardis, the tardis and takes yeah, off they actually leave in the tardis and the house materializes into the tardis in, in the right. tardis and then takes the over TARDIS. the console and everything and the yeah. console vanishes, and suddenly they're effectively back in the house again. The, in the TARDIS. The, the house is in the TARDIS, and the TARDIS is in the house, and it's turtles all the way down. You know I mean, it's, yes. it's, pretty much. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's wild. So uh, they're in the, and the doctor starts, you know, with this sort of gobbledygook that, the, you know, they are in the past, the present, the future, and all of time at once, and all of time is just all of us, you know, in this loop, and is absorbed all of the universe. And, Cuckoo, choo choo. <laughs> So it's yeah, it's it's wild, you know this this kind of mind bending, uh, yeah. discussion. So it turns out that Edith from 1906. I'm I'm just going to say it all in a straightforward way. This yes. comes out in pieces, right? But Edith, the scullery maid from 1906, did work in Edward Grove, and she then, in later years, became the cook at the mansion where Charlie grew up. And so she did know Charlie as a cook, and but she aged much more than you would expect because life downstairs is hard. And so right. Charlie didn't recognize her. Mm-hmm. 
also hadn't seen her that much, but Charlie was the only member of the household that showed kindness to Edith. And Edith would always, every Christmas, make her a plum pudding because she knew it was Charlie's favorite. And so that's why the cook is trying to feed plum pudding to Charlie early on and talking to her like my papa and stuff like that, as if she knew her and had been caring for her since she was a child. Because Edith, as an older adult cook, had done that. And then Charlie ran away and died in the R101 disaster. And when the family got the news that Charlie was dead, and Charlie was the only member of the upstairs family who'd ever cared for Edith the cook, Edith the cook wasn't even allowed to grieve for her Mm. only friend in the world, and it drove her to suicide, and she killed herself on Christmas Eve. In fact, I think that Edith carried some of the guilt because I saw somewhere that Edith actually helped her prepare to run away. Um, mm-hmm. That that was part, so that she may have carried some of that guilt as well. Mm-hmm. And I didn't catch that, but I, it wouldn't surprise yeah. me. Yep. But then, when the doctor rescued Charlie from the R one hundred one disaster, creating the paradox, Charlie was somehow back from the dead, and so it, so Edith wouldn't have killed herself, and so she's in this now. I don't know if I'm dead or alive situation. And that's what looped when the doctor and Charlie then went back to 1906. It wouldn't have made sense for Edith to have killed herself. And this is having a retroactive effect that set up the time loop. And so what we have to so what we need to do from our perspective is resolve the paradox one way or another. Either Charlie lives and Edith lives or Charlie dies and Edith dies. And Edith really doesn't care which one happens. She just wants resolution. Yes. But because the paradox is what's feeding Edward Grove, the house wants the paradox to continue right. because it's it's what is enabling the house to have this new cognizant existence. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the house is going plannings to warp time as soon as we get to the chimes of midnight again the house is going to warp time in such a way that it just loops those chimes forever and it'll be able to have its agency forever. Right. And so at first the doctor is trying to convince the house to give up its life because the house is becoming more and more sentient. So he's trying to, I think, maybe appeal to to a sense of morality or a sense of a philosophical understanding of the wrongness of what it's doing. Doesn't work. Uh, So then they realize that it's, it's, Edith, but he can't talk to Edith because she's in this dark world, this this world of where she's dead, uh, and can only in you know in the, this world of shadows. And so the doctor realizes the only way to get there is to be killed. So he gets he he convinces uh, the servant. Oh yeah, Shaughnessy. Uh, he tells Shaughnessy to kill him. It's like I'm a gentleman. You can't refuse an order from a gentleman, can you? <laughs> like, and Shaughnessy, against the house's wishes, is like, no, sir, I can't refuse the order of a gentleman that I want you to put your hands around my neck and squeeze the life out of me. <laughs> yes. And so he goes, so, so he's able to go to this other world. He's not, he doesn't regenerate. Uh, and uh, where he finds Charlie, who's beginning to forget the doctor. Um, but together they convince Edith to choose to live. That, and that's, the, it ends up being the key is Charlie tells Edith, you're not nobody. You are somebody important. You're not nothing. Uh, because, because Edith, it was kind of sad. And, you know, Pathetic in the in the in the not in the, not Pathos in the mean way. Sense. Yeah, where where like literally this woman's only friend was this little girl, mm-hmm. 
And we're given to understand that this friendship was mostly in Edith's perception. Right. That Charlie doesn't even really rem- she d- didn't see Edith the cook very much and doesn't even really remember being kind to her. But whatever little kindnesses she showed were monumental in Edith's mind because they were the only ones she got. Yeah. It, which I mean, it's it's tragic in, in the in that sense. Mm-hmm. And and that really goes to the theme of what this episode is about. You have the staff behaving creepily like clockwork people. You know, they're they're wound up and programmed to do certain things, whether they make sense or not. And that's a symbol of the dehumanizing effect that being a servant in a house like this can have on a person, which is a theme that gets explored to some degree in, in dramas like Upstairs, Downstairs, and Downton Abbey. Here it's carried to an extreme. You know, right. not every servant is dehumanized. But the clockwork behavior of the people as Edward Grove dominates them is meant to show the dehumanizing effect of being a servant in a house like this and how that 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 robs you of your agency and your humanity. Only in this case, it's the house itself that's right. doing the dehumanizing. It's not the masters upstairs that are dehumanizing the staff. It's the house itself. Right. And it's it's I mean, I, I do like this, like, you know, and it's a classic in a sense, a Christmas story in that, you know, on Christmas, you know, we, we are reminded of you know, God deigns to come down to us as one of us, um, and and that raises the dignity of all of us. Uh, that God became became man, and and thus all he, all of us, men, men and women, are raised to that dignity. And we shouldn't treat you know some people are servants, but that doesn't make them not human or nothing, which is how some people right. were sometimes treated. Um, so there is that that moment. It's which is sad, but it. You know, Charlie reaches out to Edith to help her and to raise her up. You know, in that in that moment, and to show her, you you know, your life isn't nothing. Your life is important. You are somebody. You even as the scullery maid, even as a the cook, right. you're an important person. Uh, so yeah, and and there's an interesting set of psychological dynamics that happens as this decision to live is being negotiated, because at first Charlie her memories of the of the original timeline of the crash and the flames around her and everything are reasserting themselves and she's forgetting the doctor and she's being drawn into the reality of the original timeline where she died and the doctor has to remind her of himself and all that's when he makes the appeal i mean remember if you hadn't met me you had to have met me because if you didn't we never would have gone here and we never would have had this effect and this never mm-hmm. would have happened and he starts talking about their intervening adventures. And then he makes this appeal to her that she needs to remember him and she needs to choose to live because he needs her. Because otherwise he would just be a lonely old man rattling around in a box with his life going round and round. And there's such a fascinating resonance there because essentially that's a mirror of the servants in Mm -hmm. Edward Grove is their lives are just going round and round with no purpose. And he would be in that same situation without Charlie. So she chooses to live. And then Edith is like, but wait, I haven't gone to alien planets. I'm nothing. I'm nobody. I don't have any significance. Maybe I should still kill myself. And so they then have to, then Charlie, now that the doctor has convinced Charlie to live, Charlie needs to convince Edith to live by convincing her she does have meaning 
And finally, the thing that kind of does it for Edith is she says, because she's always been concerned about people forgetting her, is, will you remember me when you're off on those alien worlds? And Charlie says, of course I will. Well, then Edith concludes, I will make a difference if you remember me and that helps you when you're out there in the universe. So I choose to live too. And that is the point at which Edward Grove freaks out because now the paradox is coming undone and the doctor is like, talk to the hand man, can't help you. <laughs> <laughs> Too bad. Right. And they, and then they reappear in the, in the, in the TARDIS, uh, you know, at the end of the story with the house having disappeared. Mm-hmm. So, uh, are there, do you have any final notes on this? Father Corey, anything Just- else to say? One little quick thing when uh, the, the scene of, of Edith being killed by the plunger remind me of the Dalek killing the engineer in this, the the New Who episode, Dalek. Yeah. yeah. And not a shock. They were both written by Robert Shearman. Both this and Dalek were written by the same guy. Oh, very funny. That's interesting. Yeah, I guess and, he likes and, that gag. <laughs> it, yeah. In fact, uh, Robert Sherman is the author of Jubilee, which is the right. Big Finish audio play that Dalek is based on. Yep. Oh, she really likes that plunger to the face gag. So, apparently, <laughs> so. So, uh, Jimmy, any final notes? Just, I, I like how the story ends with the. I like the placement of the chimes periodically, whether it's ten, eleven, or midnight, and then of course the resolution happens with the chimes at midnight, and finally, now that the paradox is undone, it gets to be Christmas Day. Yes, very good. Uh, it is a, uh, I have to say, uh, as a big finish play, it is very reasonably priced at $3. Uh, mm-hmm. Definitely, you know, check it out if you've not had it spoiled for you. Um, it would be good to to understand some of the background like we discussed in this. So maybe that'll help. That's what we're here for. Exactly. Yep. And <laughs> what TARDIS Wikia is for. <laughs> right, right. The only problem with big finish is there's so much good stuff and so little money in the pocketbook. Yes, exactly. Well, that's what we're here for. We're here to help you find the good stuff. And that's what we're doing this month with these episodes. So. I think we should wrap it up there and uh, go have our, our Christmas plum pudding uh, together. Uh, Wouldn't be Christmas without it. <laughs> but first, we'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to have Christmas plum pudding and to create the secrets of Doctor Who, including Rosemary P., Matthew G., Bob M., Paul B., and Les H. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue to continue the secrets of Doctor Who and all the shows at StarQuest, you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. And we'd also like to thank Victor Lambs, who edits our show every week. Uh, that's it from us. What do you think of this episode, the Big Finish uh, audio play Chimes of Midnight? You can let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com slash Doctor Who, or the Secrets of Doctor Who Facebook page, or uh, via an email at Who at sqpn.com. Links to all those are on our website. We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing uh, the next Big Finish audio play called Mastermind. And in a couple weeks after that, we'll be talking about the new season of Doctor Who. So, of course, uh, that's that'll be New Year's Day when Mastermind comes out. You'll have that in your hands, and that's when the new Doctor Who episode will air. But we'll be talking about that uh, the next week after that. So, until then, Father Corey Stika, thank you for joining me and sharing The Secrets of Doctor Who. Thank you, Dom, and Merry Christmas. And Jimmy Aiken, thank you as well. Thank you, and Merry Christmas. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who on StarQuest. Merry Christmas. And remember, with singing as bad as that, I'm sure God would find reconciling himself with sinners the lesser sacrifice. Right. This is going to be good. 
Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Happy Christmas. Happy Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Wouldn't be Christmas without it. Wouldn't be Christmas without it. Merry Christmas.